Hello, I am Jeff Sackman, and welcome to episode 13 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. With me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for joining me, as always, Carl. We've got a lot to talk about this week, as per usual, in a packed tennis week with four tournaments last week, um, four tournaments again this week, and of course, the Wimbledon Quality is underway and Wimbledon starting six days from now. It is Tuesday, June 27th, so we're, we've got a few matches in the books in all the tournaments this week, and we're two days removed from last week's finals. And I want to start there with the women's side. Lots of interesting stuff in the women's tournaments this past week. Petra Kvitova's comeback is coming along nicely, and we saw the, the first sightings of Victoria Azarenka coming back and Sabine Lisicki coming back. And Carl, those ladies had some mixed results, mostly good, but not entirely good. Can you give us a rundown of what we saw last week from these three returning forces on the women's tour? Kvitova, who returned at the French Open, but that felt more like a get a couple matches in on clay before grass, really returned on fire this week, um, won a title. Sabine won a couple of matches, I think, and then Azarenka won one or two matches. I know one of them went deep in the third set and, and she pulled it out, but it was, it was tough and then lost her next round. So, um, definitely mixed results, but all of them could be factors at Wimbledon. Yeah, absolutely. Especially Kvitova. I, it's a little bit of a shame that Azarenka didn't have a bit more time before Wimbledon, but of course, great that she's back and great that she was able to gut out that first round match against Riza Ozaki. Um, there are some other interesting stories there as well. I remember last week when we were recapping the, the first week of grass on the women's circuit, it was about young players. Annette Kontavite won in Hertogenbosch, um, Donna Vekic won in Nottingham, and of course, Kvitova and Azarenka and Lisicki are, are not on the young side on the women's tour, but... Ashley Barty made the final in uh, Birmingham, losing to Kvitova in three sets in the final. CC Bellis made a nice run, I believe, to the semifinals in uh, in Mallorca. And it really has been the story of the last month, hasn't it, that these young women are really making an impact. It's, it's not a matter of, like, men's tennis can be sometimes where we talk about youngsters because we want to have something to say about a player. And we end up talking about one or two who are making a bit of progress. Like these are, are women who are 18, 19, 20 and competing at the very highest level. I mean, especially Ashley Barty. Do you think that we could see someone like Barty make a run at Wimbledon? Yeah, definitely. And her game really suits the surface and it's, it's especially impressive how well she's doing coming back. Uh, And, you know, we could see her make a run in doubles at Wimbledon too. Yeah, it almost seems like a certainty. <laughs> Certainty's too strong, but she's been so good in doubles. And Casey Delacqua is a great partner. Uh, they've reached the finals and lost their Roland Garros, which is not at all Barty's strongest surface. And I totally agree about Barty. I absolutely love watching her play. She's so smooth. I mean, as you point out, her game is really well suited to grass. And unlike a lot of players, both men and women, but especially some some younger players in the WTA tour, she looks so comfortable on court, like especially playing an all-court game. She just kind of gets it in a way that a lot of young players don't. Um, and it's just really fun to watch. Like I, I hope that she continues to improve and, and does reach the top of the game because she's just a joy to watch compared to a lot of the other players of her age group. Um, 
this week on the women's I side. I just want to also say about, yeah. about Bella, since you mentioned her, I mean, what's really impressive to me is how she's been making runs on every surface, no matter her level of experience on the surface, and and just playing a lot of tennis when it was a question, an open question less than a year ago at the U.S. Open if she'd be going pro. She's certainly gone pro, and she's, you know, in position to be seated at, at majors. It's 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 about as much as you could hope for a player her age, which she's already shown since making that decision. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. And, and absolutely, it's tremendously impressive what she's done playing her first clay season and having so much success. And I think these were her first professional matches on grass. And to show up in Mallorca and play as well she has, she, she beat Carla Suarez Navarro, who's more of a clay quarter, but still a very formidable opponent on any surface. And still so young and really climbing the ranks because with, with Serena out, uh, Bellis is someone you'd have to put in the conversation for, for a U.S. Fed Cup tie at this point. I mean, she's still not quite that high in the rankings. She trails uh, Coco Vandeweghe a little bit still and Lauren Davis and, of course, Venus Williams. But she's climbing fast, and she doesn't have a ton of points to, um, to defend for the rest of the year. So it might be a stretch to say she could be top 20 at the end of the year. But if she keeps playing like this, she could end up close. And for a player at her age, that's just tremendously impressive. Uh, this coming week, or already underway, or in a rain delay as we record this in, in Eastbourne, I remember talking last week about how many top players pulled out of Birmingham. Birmingham is normally the strongest women's tournament going into Wimbledon. That's the premier, and it has a nice week break between itself and Wimbledon. But most top players, including Angelique Kerber and Simona Halep, pulled out of Birmingham with nagging injuries. And most of them are showing up in Eastbourne instead. So unusually, Eastbourne has a very, very good draw. I think... I read that it had eight of the top 10, 10 ranked players or something like that. So really, really strong draw. It's looking like it could make a bit of a scheduling mess since the, the forecast is pretty bad and they're only in the second round. And they usually try to wrap these up on Saturday. Um, Carl, is there anything in particular you're watching for this week at Eastbourne with so many of these injured players making comebacks right before the Grand Slam? Well, I wouldn't be surprised to see some withdrawals. I mean, it's the, the sort of lowest signal of an actual injury and in a withdrawal is probably the week before a slam of, oh, I entered, got some hitting in, there were rain delays, I don't really want to play a competitive match a few days before, there aren't a lot of points, there aren't a lot of dollars or pounds at stake. Um, so, so I'm not sure all of them are going to make it all the way through the week, or you know, even if they don't withdraw, maybe they're not nearly as motivated as they will be when Wimbledon starts. Uh, It is weird to have this be such a high-level draw. Um, I think there's decent evidence that if you want to get in your reps on a surface, you should, and and you are one of the very top players, you should try to finish a week before the major starts. At least there are a lot of top players who have shown that's a successful template. And the the women's tour does this in a couple of places because you also have the week before the Australian Open, uh, a top-level event, if I'm remembering correctly. So it's it's an interesting, different approach. Of course, they're, they're not going into a major to suddenly have to switch to best of five, so maybe the combination of best of three and a day off makes it more possible on the women's tour, but it, it still seems like as good of a draw as this is, I'm not expecting 
all the top players to be playing at their peak or at their peak motivation. Yeah, and even if they are all playing at their peak motivation, they'll almost all be out. Like, even if there's some great round of 16 or quarterfinal matches, like, it will only affect a few players when it comes to the very end of the week on Friday or Saturday. And, of course, the ones who, who do really care about getting that extra rest time or the ones who do have nagging injuries, as you point out, like, they, they could be gone by then. And we've already seen... Well, one nice thing about the... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, we've already seen one uh, withdrawal like that. Petra Kvitova, of course, coming off of that great run in Birmingham. She already pulled out, which is a bit of a shame because the, her placement in the draw had her poised for a round of 16 match against Simona Halep, assuming they both made it. And that would have been super interesting. As it is, we get um, Svetana Parankova, who's had some great grass court results in the past, She's in as a lucky loser, so there's a really entertaining match, I believe, on the schedule for today between Parankova and Monica Nicolescu, and then the winner of that probably gets Simona Halep. So we'll get some interesting matches in lieu of having Petra there, but it, it would have been a, a real popcorn match to have a, a, an early round contest between Kvitova and Halep the week before Grand Slam. Oh, definitely. It, it, it definitely would have been exciting. And, and also... One reason maybe that players don't have to worry as much about Eastbourne is that it's about as close as you can get to Wimbledon geographically without being there. So maybe it's not it's not such a bad thing. You're not flying from another country or across the country like you would be in Australia. Although it is also, from what I remember, a very windy tournament. And maybe that's also some conditions that you don't need to particularly get used to for Wimbledon. Not that it can't be windy at Wimbledon, but that's not the normal state of affairs there. Well, one other interesting section of the draw that I want to highlight, since we're still very focused on how Yelena Ostapenko is going to fare after winning Roland Garros, and Ostapenko's game seems like it should be very well suited to grass. I, I hope I remember this right, that she won the Wimbledon Juniors, so she can obviously play on the surface. And assuming Johanna Conta wins her match against Serana Kirstea, which I believe is on the schedule for today, the next match for Conta would be against Ostapenko, and that would be quite a, quite some fireworks. Again, a, a round of 16 match. And then they're in the same section with Angelique Kerber. And, of, of course, Kerber has been disappointing all season long, but she's had some good runs on grass as well. So we could see some, even with Kvitova out and the, the bottom half of the draw looking a little less exciting, we could see some really high-profile matches against players we're really interested to see on grass in that top quarter. Who do you expect to be number one going into Wimbledon? Oh, right. Halep could grab it, couldn't she? Yep. I, I forgot about that. I don't know. I haven't looked at the exact scenario. Is it, is it, is it basically just that Halep has to get further than Kerber? Is that right? Uh, let's go to the handy live ranking. Live tennis.eu is, is my go-to for the WTA. And um, Kerber is ahead of her by all of 115 points. So we're talking about Halep going somewhat deep and uh, a little bit, maybe like a round past Kerber. So if, if Halep wins the thing, for instance, she'll be in first by uh, more than 300 points if Kerber doesn't win a match. So there, there are a couple of scenarios in which she could do it. Uh, but, yeah, she'd have to win at least a few rounds to have a shot. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I, I certainly would 
would pick Halep as more likely to go deep at the tournament, but I also think she's going to be one of those players who won't risk her health to win Eastbourne. So the draw did open up kind of nicely with Kvitova pulling out. Uh, I, I see Elena Vesnina is also in her quarter. She's not favored. She, Elena Vesnina will have to beat Wozniacki before she would face Halep, but she's someone who could create a problem for Halep uh, going deep. And I don't know. I, I don't. I wouldn't be surprised to see both of those players out before the quarterfinals or the semifinals. So, if I had to put money on it, I'd say Kerber will still be number one going into Wimbledon. It doesn't really matter in the seedings because, for one thing, they'll be one and two, and for another thing, the seedings are based on rankings right now, not rankings next Monday. But do you see it differently, Carl? Do you think it's more likely than I'm saying that Halep will go in as number one? No, I think there are just too many variables. Plus that. She she won't prioritize that over Wimbledon, and she also has a really good chance to be number one after Wimbledon because Kerber will be defending finalist points from last year. Um, although, did they already? No, I think they dropped the Wimbledon points next week. The calendar is so strange that I'm not sure because I see Serena Williams is now way down the rankings, which made me wonder if the Wimbledon points have already come off. Mm-hmm. Um it, it's been hard to keep up. I mean, I don't know exactly how you would do it, but I've often thought that the 52-week system being so rigid doesn't make a lot of sense when tournaments shift by a week. Like, it doesn't... There, there's something cleaner to me about your points from a, an event count up until and through, like, the, the seeding for that event. And the... Um, I guess the seeding is set the week before, but the ranking for that event feels like it should count the ranking from the week from the year before, if at least we're doing this one-year system. But because it's 52 weeks, that often hasn't been the case this year. Regardless, uh, the number one ranking will be very much up for grabs at Wimbledon itself, and Karolina Pliskova will be in contention too, no matter what she does at Eastbourne. But if she wins Eastbourne and the other two women slump out, there could be a range of about 100 points between the top three women in the WTA going into Wimbledon. And it would be pretty exciting for the winner of Wimbledon to be clinching the number one ranking at the same time, which is something we've seen a few times before. Yeah, and I think it'll be fantastic for one of those ladies to hold on to the number one ranking for a couple months until Ostapenko or CC Bellis takes it over for the next decade. Um, so this is this is their window, <laughs> I think, before the next generation comes. Well, along. Kerber already has had her window, but yeah, for Pliska van Halep, twenty-five-year-olds, uh, maybe maybe this is their their brief moment. Yeah, um, and a lot will depend on how the Wimbledon draw shakes out. I'm very curious to see how the bracket takes shape because I just posted something this morning, and it's only about the men's draw, uh, but it was about how the Wimbledon seedings affected the chances of various players winning the tournament or going deep to the semifinals. And those simulations I ran weren't based on, of course, the specific draw because we don't know what the draw is going to look like. And on the men's side, the top four, or the big four, this is excluding Stan Wawrinka, they're quite a bit ahead of the rest of the pack in terms of their their grass court ratings. So they're, they've got the top four seeds. They're likely to get to, the, get to that final four and we'll could very well see a playoff between the four of them to decide the winner of the tournament. But there aren't a lot of, of wild cards on the men's side. So no matter how the draw shapes up, I think those four will still be favored to get the semifinals. But there are so many wild cards on the women's side right now, in addition to the fact that you might not think Kerber is really number one, or you might not think Halep is that great on grass, even, even more unpredictable factors like 
Kvitova being outside the top 10, uh, Azarenka and Lisicki being unseated. I mean, to think that anyone in the draw could face a former Wimbledon finalist in the first round or Victoria Azarenka in the first round or could have to get past Kvitova in the fourth round, I think the draw will have a tremendous impact on any individual player's chances of winning in a way that in most years it wouldn't. You know, speaking of Kvitova being seated and, and where she is in the rankings, that, that took me by surprise. I was thinking, wow, she missed all this time. She's going to have to fight her way back. And then I looked at what she did last year between now and the end of the year, and it just shows that the attack on her and her home that, that cost her these about six months of tennis uh, really just interrupted a great period of play for her, and she's kind of picked up where she left off. And so she she seems like that of, of that group like a really formidable threat. I don't know how you would forecast all that, although I guess Elo just assumes she she is where she was left off. And between her grass results generally and her overall recent level, I would think she's going to come out very well in your forecast. Yeah, I, I think so too. And she certainly did in the Birmingham forecast. Uh, of course, the field there as it. Let's as sound it, British for a second and call it Birmingham. Birmingham. I'm sorry. I. Especially if I'm looking at it, it's so hard because, of course, with my with my roots in Alabama, I, I tend to. <laughs> You're a Bama boy. Yeah, the Southern accent just comes right out. But yeah, I'm actually surprised to see that. Looking at the ELO ratings here, Kvitova isn't particularly high on grass. I mean, she's she's seventh, but I would have expected it to be a little bit higher. Um, but sure, I mean, she's she's going to be a a major threat. Since the field wasn't super strong in Birmingham. It, it might be that she's not quite up to that level yet, and she, she did manage to win that title, of course, but maybe if she'd had to face more difficult competition, she wouldn't have. And I've mentioned this on the podcast a couple times in the past, but when I was writing about Sharapova's return a couple months ago, I did a mini-study on this, on players who were out for women who were out for six months or more for the whole variety of possible reasons, including pregnancy and injury, and found that after their first few matches back, they settled in at a level about 100 ELO points below where they left. And that's very plausible for Kvitova right now. That would put her outside the top 10, but inside the top 15. And I guess that wouldn't be that far off from her current ranking. I know she would have been the 13th seed at at Eastbourne this week if she had played. So I'm not exactly sure where her WTA ranking is, but... Maybe that isn't too far off, but of course, someone who's won Wimbledon twice, they're a much bigger threat on their best day. So, Carl, I think that is everything we wanted to talk about on the women's side, unless you interrupt me and and say differently. But we did want to talk about one more women's tennis-related issue, which is a big one and has had a lot of people talking over the last couple days, is John McEnroe has spoken. He's promoting a book or promoting himself or doing what John Macron normally does, which is say controversial things and show up in the news. And this week's controversial thing is that he said that if Serena Williams were to play in the men's game, she would be about 700th in the world. And there's not a whole lot of context there, I don't think. Um, he, he, he did have some comments about him thinking he might personally have a chance at beating her, but... He understands that people disagree, and his, his kids don't think he could beat her at his advanced age and level of fitness or whatever. Uh, so, Carl, I know, I know you're excited to, to dive into this issue. What do you think about 
about McEnroe's comments? Is this is this offensive? Is this blatantly wrong? Like, what are what's your initial reaction to something like this? Okay, so first, while I have to confess, I do want to talk about this because I think even wanting to talk about this is an uncool position right now in tennis, uh, with most people just wanting to dismiss it and say, "Shut up, John. This is dumb. This is a distraction." And it certainly is not about any player who's going to be playing on either tour anytime soon. So I get that. And and I think we should probably in the show notes give the time box that this discussion happens in. So if people really don't want to hear us talking about it, they can just skip it. Having said that, I think that McEnroe, I think you have to judge McEnroe's comments on a few different levels. So from a purely did he need to say what he said level I think it was somewhat dumb. And what I mean by that is he didn't, first of all, he didn't bring it up. And I think a lot of the backlash to his comments, and there's been quite a big one within and outside of tennis, a lot of it I think is assuming that he, like he so often does, just brashly and unprompted made this remark. But if you read the transcript of the NPR interview, he was being asked about his his comment that he thinks Serena Williams is the greatest women's tennis player of all time. And he was prodded as to why he didn't say he thought she was the greatest player of all time. And his answer was, well, because I don't think she's she is, because I think she wouldn't be uh, the best player uh, regardless of gender and that she would be um, number 700 on the men's tour. So I, I don't blame him for having that opinion, and it's a valid opinion. And I, I, um, I think some people don't think it's even a valid opinion or even something someone should comment on, and we can talk about that more later. But I also think he could have answered the question just by saying, I don't think she's better than the best male player. And I I really think a lot of the backlash has to do with the specific number he chose. And I'm not even sure he's wrong. I mean, nobody is, even the people with the largest, largest outcry against him. But he could have said number 200 and pointed to the time that a guy ranked around 200th in the world beat both Venus Williams and Serena Williams pretty one-sidedly in practice sets that the two sisters had themselves proposed. Now, this was 16 years ago, but they already were among the best players in the world. So it's it's possible that we could extrapolate from that as much as you can extrapolate from any sort of practice set. But choosing 700 just sounded more belittling and demeaning. And it could be that 200 isn't right either. Maybe it's 100, maybe it's 300. But the point of his answer was just, she's not the greatest player because there are men who are better than her. And it doesn't matter at that point if it's one man or 699 men. So I think that is a big part of what happened here. Uh, I have some other thoughts, but I've already been talking for a while. So what was your reaction? Well, my first reaction is, I don't care what John McEnroe says about anything. I mean, that sounds dismissive. And of course, he's a great tennis player and can be very interesting to listen to. But whenever I see his name pop up on my Twitter feed, I I just... I'm disappointed because I know people are going to be talking about it and it's, it's pointless and irrelevant. And I do kind of class this in the same category. I, I don't have a ton of interest in talking about this, especially right now with so much interesting tennis happening, which incidentally doesn't involve Serena for the first time in a long time. So I think there's a lot more interesting issues in women's tennis we could be talking about. There might even be more interesting things that John McEnroe could talk about, although I'm less sure about that. But just in your comments, Carl, there's there's a whole lot of issues, and like just starting with with the one that so many people seem to take offense at McEnroe raising the issue at all. And as you point out, he was prodded into it a little bit, so it's not like he brought it up just for attention. Although of course he does love his attention. Um, 
I don't have an objection to having this conversation. What's, what makes it not so interesting to me is that I don't know how we would ever answer it. I mean, I know a lot of sports fans, not just tennis fans, just live for having these sort of best of all time, compare eras, compare sports, compare athletes, compare whatever. And people freak out about the Laureus Awards or what? I mean, I, the ESPYs. I don't even understand the point of these things that that we'd be comparing across sports because it's sort of like what, what Rod Laver says when he's asked about who the greatest of all time is. It's like, you can't, you just can't really compare eras. It's just, I don't know what I would say if you asked me if Serena was the greatest tennis player of all time, because there's just, there's just too many variables. I don't know that you can name a greatest tennis player of all time, even though of course, like so many people, my gut says Federer, but I know that's my gut. I know I can't really back it up. Um, but if we are going to have the conversation, I'm not offended by, the, by, by making these comparisons. Like, if we were to have an infinite number of Serena clones to test our theories, let's say, and we could use you know, the, the 60 courts at the Istanbul Tennis Center to run all these tests, we could figure out where someone at Serena Williams' current level of play would probably rank on the men's tour. And I would be interested in knowing that. I have no idea what that would be. I mean, what I think is is tricky about people reacting to the number like 700 or 200 is, you're right, Carl, I think that the fact that he said 700 does seem belittling because most people can't name more than a few players outside the top 100, let alone outside the top 500. So to say number seven, 700 sounds like a synonym for really bad. And... I did a, a quick query before we started recording this just to show that it doesn't mean it's really bad. I mean, I'll get to the, the, the query in a, in a second, but first, keep in mind all the men over the years who have said that the difference between top 10 and number 100 or number 1 and number 100 is really just mental. I mean, anyone who's in the top 100, they've got the game to be the top player on any day of the year. So that's my first point, that there's not a lot of difference between number 1 and number 100. And I would go so far as to say there's less of a difference between number 100 and number 700, or even number 1,000. The, the query that I ran was looking at how players in that range performed in challenger matches. So we think of someone ranked number 700 as being a whole nother level down, but they do often qualify or get wild cards or play weak challengers. And I found that those guys win one-third of their challenger matches. So they're competitive at the challenger level. And those of you who've watched very much challenger tennis a lot of it is really high-quality tennis. I mean, some of it's comparable to early rounds of a slam, early rounds of a 500, maybe even a Masters. So this is all just a long-winded way of saying the number 700 tennis player on the men's tour is really, really good. And there's not that much difference between... I don't think there's much difference between saying someone is equivalent to number 700 and number 200. And as you point out, Carl, we do have that bit of sort of shaky evidence about Serena versus number 200 in the world. So I'm certainly not offended that someone would make that comparison. There's, there's just the physical differences that probably prevent any woman from being as good as the best male player. So if, if you're okay with saying the best woman is not as good as the best male player, it's not that much bigger of a step to say the best woman is not as good as the top 100 male players or the top 200 male players and short of some type of being able to test it i i don't know that i'm i don't know that i know how to settle that kind of debate any further than that
There's a lot to respond to there. Um, much of it I agree with. First of all, I think this is one area we do differ in. I think we probably hear too much from former tennis greats, and there are sometimes whole stories built around one segment that one retired player who hasn't been heard from in years does where they weigh in on whether they think Djokovic is better than Federer and Nadal or that kind of thing. And I certainly don't need those. I give McEnroe more weight despite how occasionally off base or annoying or like deliberately provocative he can be because he does actually commentate on a lot of matches and he also plays a lot of exhibitions and he plays world team tennis sometimes against current players. So I think he's speaking from, and and he also has his own academy um, not far from where I'm sitting here in New York city. So I think he, um, he knows more about the current game and the current players than, than most retired players do. Um, and he's he's even coached as as briefly or or inconsistently inconsistently as it's been with Milos Raonic. So for all these reasons, I think he knows something about the current tour. And he even practices, um, he even practices with these guys. Like when I was at Cincinnati a yeah. couple of years ago, he was carrying his racket bag, and I saw him. I forget who he was practicing with, but with a top twenty player, I think. So just to to reiterate what you're saying, yeah, he he absolutely is in touch with the game as it stands in 2017. Yeah, and he plays these the courts and the equipment like he plays in the Legends ranks. And part of the reason I think he said, hey, maybe I could have a chance against her was not because I the only current pro who I think I could have a chance against would be a woman, but because he plays occasional singles exhibitions against current or recently retired pros and plays them close. So he thinks he... Now, now, I don't think he could win it. He thinks that he could win a best of five or a series of best of fives, although who knows what John McEnroe actually thinks about his own talents. But he, I saw him a few years ago play a you know first to five world team tennis format tiebreaker to five uh, mini set against Andy Roddick, who I think had just retired. And it came down to the last point. Now, was Roddick trying his absolute hardest? Probably not, although I think he and John McEnroe have had enough differences over the years. They probably wouldn't have minded trouncing him. McEnroe still takes tennis incredibly seriously, and he even said in the NPR interview like how intensely he would train if he had this uh, theoretical exhibition against Serena Williams. So he certainly thought about it, but again, he didn't bring this up, and he he wasn't um, he wasn't the one who was like, let me try to get this into the interview about uh, why I'm going to be able to beat Serena Williams to kind of egg her into an exhibition. So, so, so just a, a slight defense there of McEnroe and, and his opinion um, and that I think he's more informed than other retired players. Uh, in terms of where Serena stands and, and how you couldn't possibly know, I, I certainly take your point about comparison across sports or across eras. But if there's any hypothetical that actually could be somewhat resolved, it's this one, because the despite what you might think from the outcry and the backlash to what McEnroe said, there is a history in the sport of exhibitions between men and women. And this goes back way before the famous battle of the sexes between Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King. I, I don't remember now which player it was, but I stumbled upon a series of exhibitions that a woman was playing against some top men in, I think, the 1930s, and she won a number of them. And, uh, of course, Billie Jean King won that match against Bobby Riggs, although there have been some allegations that haven't been totally supported, but 
published in a lengthy ESPN the Magazine article that, that Riggs threw the match because he had gambling debts. Riggs had also just beaten Margaret Court, and he was also quite a bit older than both of them. So there, there's a smaller age difference, I think, than McEnroe-Williams would be, but not that much smaller. Uh, Jimmy Connors, when he was older than Martina Navratilova and maybe had already retired, they played an exhibition where he had only one serve and she could hit into a wider part of the court and he still won. I don't say any of these are definitive about how Serena Williams would do, and I'm not saying Serena Williams would necessarily ever again play a match against a man, maybe especially not after this week's comments and her reaction, which we'll get to, but it's not like it's out of the realm of possibility for there to be such a match. There's even a movie coming out about Battle of the Sexes, and it just shows that even though people seem, some people seem offended by the very notion that a woman should play against a man to see what happens, this was a great moment, remembered now as a great moment for feminism, for women's sports, to show that a woman could be a man who had been a great tennis player. Uh, and we also have mixed doubles as a regular event on tour. Now, granted, that's not one woman against one man, but a big part of mixed doubles outcomes and strategies is how does the woman do serving to the man baseline ground stroking against the man uh when, when there's a lob which player takes it so this is this is a part of tennis more than it is just about any other sport and unlike other sports it's also a single sport i play a lot of ultimate frisbee and that's generally a co-ed sport but you wouldn't really be able to assess how players compare to each other because it's a seven on seven sport it wouldn't really mean much but in a single sport, it does. Now, any one match and certainly any one set doesn't prove anything. Maybe when Serena and Venus played those practice sets, they were just totally goofing around. Um, it, it also especially doesn't mean anything because while McEnroe might train his life out and, and find the players he can find who play the most like Serena Williams to, uh, to practice with, Serena Williams has been her whole life optimizing for playing against women. So her very first match against a man would probably go a lot worse than her 100th or 200th if she ever, you know, really did try to, let's say, have a go of it on the challenger tour. Um, she has to hit with a certain style against certain balls and that would change. And more than just about anyone else in history, I think she'd be able to change with it. So it is the question, what would she be right now if she went and entered a challenger? Would she be at number 700 or what would she be after a year or two? Those could be very different answers. Uh, it's one reason why I find it a little silly to look at, let's say, just serve speed and say her serve speed is comparable to the top 100. You, you pointed out that there's not much difference between the top 100 on the men's side and, and number 700, and that's almost certainly true with serve speed, but also that's just one part of the game. There's serve spin, and then there's everything that happens after the serve. Uh, and I think if you took Serena Williams' serve away if, if she were just rallying with the WTA, she wouldn't have been as dominant over the last five years. She still would have been one of the very best players, but uh, in everything but the serve, she probably wasn't the best player uh, over this period that she's dominated. All right, I, that was a lot. What do you got? <laughs> yeah, we could definitely fill up the rest of this episode and maybe the next one with, with talking about this because once you get past the, the controversy manufactured otherwise about this, like, it, it is, as you can tell, a really interesting question. And when you start thinking about all the analytical implications and, and possibilities it raises, it, it it is fun to think about. And you mentioned that we have the data on Serena's serve speed, at least from slams for the last few years. And we can compare that and say that, okay, if, if it were just a serving contest, then Serena would be right up there with at least some population of top men. And that's true. 
and of course that's a small part of the game. But in theory, if you did have every bit of information from ball tracking, ball, ball tracking, player tracking, all that sort of thing, from Hawkeye or from PlaySight or something like that, then maybe you could make a more direct comparison. Um, you might you might be able to say that if you're comparing the top thousand men against the top thousand women, you might be able to say that Serena is number. 77 among men in serve speed and number 150 among men in you know forehand rpms or i don't know i mean i'm obviously making up these numbers but if you did have every single one of those parameters then maybe you could figure out that serena is playing an awful lot like the current number 232 on the men's tour or maybe not maybe you'd have some metrics that would show that in certain ways every professional man down to the top 700 is doing something that Serena doesn't do. And again, we would, we would never know with numbers like that, whether Serena could change her game, as you point out, because of course, if she was playing against a different set of competition, she would alter her strategy. She would train differently to adjust for that. But there are a lot more things that we could potentially know. Because if, if we do have ball tracking on, you know, Carl Bialik's practice session from Indian Wells this year, then we definitely have good ball tracking for things like the UCLA men's tennis team, which might include someone in the top 1,000 right now, but not that far inside the top 1,000. So in theory, we're not that far away from having the data out there. And it would be immensely interesting to have more of those numbers to get a sense for what men are doing that most women or all women aren't. Because I think a lot of fans believe very strongly that the men's game is a lot better. And I don't totally agree, but if you watch matches back to back, you can see some, you can see some differences. So I understand what they're reacting to. And I don't think we're close to being able to quantify that, but the building blocks are starting to fall into place. So maybe when Serena is, is, you know, training her, her daughter to be number one in the world in 15 years, then maybe we'll be in a position to answer these questions better and have a sense of where Serena would have ranked on the men's tour these days. Yeah, and I, I think there are a few other places where people have some sense, even if it, it's not... I mean, I, I definitely think your analytical approach makes a lot of sense and that someone could could try to put that together. I think the uh, maybe the trickiest part, though not impossible, would be court coverage. A lot of men cite that as an issue where they think uh, the top women would be at a disadvantage, which isn't necessarily visible to the naked eye. And there are plenty of the fastest women on tour who look to me as fast as the fastest men uh, with my naked eye. So somehow comparing like percentage of time they get from a certain position to a certain ball, uh, you know, figuring out how to control for all the variables there might might get you an answer to that part. But we also have a lot of men who have coached on the women's tour. Probably uh, the the whole profession of hiring coaches is a bit biased towards men uh, in that there have been almost no women coaching on the men's tour. But we've had some cases where retired men have certainly hit with and trained with women, and they have hitting partners. Uh, I think occasionally men and women practice together, including, I assume, mixed doubles pairs near the end of, of tournaments. And then at, a, at training academies, I think it's not an unusual thing for maybe the top 17-year-old uh, girl to be practicing with like a 15-year-old boy. So when you, when you talk to young players or, or players of any age, they have, they have a hunch here. Uh, I did a story a few years ago when Andy Murray 
to much less outcry, said he wanted to play an exhibition against Serena Williams. Now, Andy Murray is is a, <laughs> a nicer person or, or, you know, more outwardly nicer, more polite person than John McEnroe, probably a little smarter about what he says, too, at least when he's not muttering to himself on court. And he did not make any claim about what would happen. He just said he wanted to play an exhibition. I think that's the right approach. Don't assume you know the outcome, but, but say you want to do it. And she said she'd be afraid she wouldn't even win a game. Uh, and maybe they would have to change the rules. But at the time, I talked to a few players, and a few of them, surprisingly including Dustin Brown and Nick Kyrgios, did not want to comment. Uh, I was a little surprised neither of them did. But a few others, including some Australians, said who were ranked around 200, said they thought they'd win. Um, and then there was there was another player who I didn't quote by name, and I, I still won't now, but the, the fall before, so this is now five years ago, so I feel comfortable talking about it. I was at ATP University, and we were doing, I was, I was allowed to sit in for an article to talk about media training, uh, how, how to handle media questions. And a player kind of unprompted said, well, you know, sometimes, like, I just want to express my opinion, and, and my opinion is that any man with a ranking point could beat any woman. Um, and, and why can't I just express that? And that's often seen as really a bad thing to say. And I got in trouble for saying it on my Facebook. So the ATP was not happy. I was hearing this all, this whole exchange and really pushed for me not to put it in the article. And I decided in the end not to, not, not so much because the ATP didn't want me to, but because this was a kid who hadn't yet had the training that would have told him not to say this with a member of the press in the room because he knew I was there. Um, I didn't want to get him in any trouble that uh, he didn't know he was walking into in an environment where he thought he could speak freely. But that's that that comment is him saying that he thinks any of the top 2000 or so men could beat any woman on tour, which is the most extreme version I've heard. Um, the the point also that I'm I'm leading to with all this is that people genuinely care about this. Like a lot of the outcry is. How dare you even bring bring this up? And again, John didn't bring it up. He was asked about it, although he was not asked, do you think Serena Williams could um, beat any man? He was asked, why isn't Serena Williams the greatest tennis player of all time? So he brought it to this rubric that he uses, which is, can she beat any tennis player? And I think that's one reasonable one, although maybe not the only one. Um, but people ask me this all the time. It, it comes up all the time in social media. Some of it is very sexist and disrespectful, but some of it is just genuinely curious. And I think some of that curiosity is born from the knowledge of the history of the sport, including Battle of the Sexes. And it's it's just natural that when men and women play alongside each other at Grand Slams and then literally alongside each other at Mixed Doubles, for the mind to be curious about it. And it's an arena where they could compete fairly. Um, so it's it, even though we both professed some reluctance on this topic, I think there's a reason why people keep raising it. And one of the reasons is it, it does feel more answerable than some of the other sports hypotheticals. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think tennis lends itself more to this sort of discussion than the bigger team sports do. Because it, when we watch a, a major team sport like baseball or football, we realize that those guys are just at a, a totally different stratosphere than we are. But with tennis, we're playing on the same court, the same equipment. Yes, we know that if we played a match against Federer or Serena or any top player, they would destroy us and we probably wouldn't win a point. But if you're watching a match between a couple of lower-ranked players, maybe not having their best day, 
you kind of have to wonder. I mean, I, I've sat in the crowded qualifying matches at the U.S. Open and you know, had my hitting partner tell me that my forehand was better than this guy's. And like, that was a very flattering and incorrect thing to say in that case. But the point is that you can imagine yourself competing with someone not too far from the very top. And if, if me, a 4.0 player, can think about that with you know, a top 150 player, even if it's wrong and I would probably lose every point against that guy too, then it's all that much more natural to wonder about two players at the very top of their game like Serena and a top man or Serena and a top 100 man or whatever the threshold is. They're playing with, as you point out, the same rules. They're both cracking 110 miles per hour on the radar gun. They're both hitting incredible ground strokes into the corners. So they are playing the same game. And and we do wonder, and it's it seems like something that could be settled easily. So so I agree. It's it, it's easy to be distracted by the sort of instant Twitter reaction that there are these lines you don't cross, that all these things should be out of bounds. But when, when you're talking to normal people who are casual fans of the sport and maybe don't have as much at stake with someone's reputation or all sorts of other political issues in the background, then... It is an interesting thing to speculate about, as you can tell, since we've been talking about it for 25 minutes now. Um, before we move on, Carl, do you have any final thoughts on that? I do, um, and I agree we should we should move on, but a, a few things I think we should touch on. First of all, you brought up before that any greatest debate will have some hypotheticals, and, that, and that's absolutely true. And um, the... <sighs> that debate also just tends to bring out the worst in people. So it comes up all the time, for instance, between Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic diehards. And because it's not really something answerable, because there are no clear criteria, and because it touches on people's favorite players, it can just get really ugly and heated. And and sort of the, the heat to signal the noise to signal ratio is so high in these kinds of debates. So, so I get that sort of fundamentally, this is, this is tricky. Um, I also think that some of this, this sort of backlash is tied up with something that is awkward probably for us to talk about. We're two white dudes talking here. Serena Williams is a black woman. She's experienced a lot of sexism and racism. She sort of brought to the surface, a lot of sexism and racism in and around tennis and as a result of that, she has not a, not only as a result of that, but uh, related to that, she has a lot of fans who are fans not of tennis or even of her tennis, but of her as a really strong woman who has succeeded and dominated in a sport that's typically associated with rich white country club types. And she did it with these roots in poor L.A. neighborhood and with a really brash father, not unlike John McEnroe, who pushed her and her sister to greatness. And all of those things can can make it feel to some people like anything that questions anything about her tennis is sexist and racist. I think there's a whole, you know, somewhat uh, successful take industry on critiquing any critique of Serena Williams on those grounds. And some critiques of Serena Williams are sexist and racist. So it is a, a natural, maybe even a, a fair default. And it, it maybe even feels that way to people more when it's an old white dude like John McEnroe, who himself didn't come from the wealthiest roots, but is now quite a wealthy man who's, who's paid a lot of money just to opine on tennis and to write a memoir about tennis, uh, to say something that seems demeaning or belittling to her. So I get all of that. But if we are at a point in any sport 
where it's not okay to discuss the strengths of weaknesses of players as players and who would they beat and who would they lose to, then we're not really talking about sports anymore. And I think that's an un, unfortunate strain in some discussion of women's sports in particular of we should just celebrate how amazing they are and not criticize them if they used a bad tactic that cost them the match or really had an off shooting night, that, that it's really just about celebrating how great it is that they are playing at a high level. And I think the number one indicator to me of we are treating women's sports on equal footing with men's sports is pay, of course. But after pay, it might be, do we talk about them in the same way we talk about men's sports? We're just talking about sports. And some of the outcry to, I wrote a story a couple of years ago with Ben Morris for, at 538 about how ELO suggested that Serena Williams wasn't the greatest player of all time, uh, greatest women's player of all time, get, not getting into the McEnroe question. And it's a really tricky question to answer, but it's certainly not definitely, definitely the case that Serena Williams is the best. I think she is, but you can't just say, well, because she's a more modern player and athletes in general have been getting better, that she must be the best, because then you'd say that Angelique Kerber is the best because she's the current number one. Um, so the, the, it's certainly possible you can make a case for Steffi Grafstel or Martina Navratilova, let's say, or even Monica Seles, if, if not for the stabbing that curtailed her career. And it's just a very tricky question, again, because we don't know what all the criteria are. But it's a fair question, and it's not a racist or sexist question fundamentally. I, I think the backlash was, in addition, fueled by Serena Williams, who is pregnant and off the tour right now, weighing in and basically saying to John McEnroe that he has to keep her out of his statements that aren't factually based. So I guess we can't have any speculative comments about one of the greatest players of all time, which is difficult. And then she said respect me and my privacy as I'm trying to have a baby. And again, this, this really fueled a lot of outrage, like how dare you disrespect her by talking about where she ranks among tennis players. And then her next tweet, you know, less than 15 hours later was a photo of her on the cover of Vanity Fair. So I think it's wonderful that she has overcome all that she has and is now on covers of magazines, but that seems to me to leave it not a question even as to whether it's fair game to talk about her as a tennis player. Yeah, one point that you made that I want to amplify a little bit is is that you're right. I think that the the topics under discussion when we're talking women's sports often are not as much about what's happening on court or what's happening on the field. And that will be a big sign that women's sports have reached parity if we can comfortably talk about what's happening on court the way that that people have always sat around having bar discussions about about men's sports. And one thing that, you know, in our little corner of the world will help that is if there is more analytics on women's sports. And that's a huge gap in the analytics world, partly because analytics, like so many things, is driven by money. And most of the money is in the big men's team sports in the U.S. and in men's football in Europe. So there isn't the money to drive an industry in women's sports the same way that there is in, in men's sports. But there's probably more money and more interest than we've seen so far. And even just even just within tennis, where the sports are money-wise reasonably equal and the interest levels are pretty equal, there's way more analytics of men's tennis than there are women's tennis. And like I'm partly guilty of that because when I first started doing this, there was way more data available uh, on, on men's tennis and women's tennis. And 
I've tried to close that gap, but the gap is definitely still there. But I think it will it will be a, a sign, not a, not a primary driver by any means, but it will be a sign of when people can can find a niche to talk about more analytics in women's sports and have those discussions like you talk about, about whether Serena is the greatest tennis player, the third greatest tennis player, whatever, of, uh, of all time on the women's tour, and just have that discussion on its own merits on within its own scope rather than having it bleed over into all these other things. Agreed. Okay, so we have gone on about this for a long time. I will make a note in the show notes that we are moving on to other things. So those of you who do, who want to talk only about the, the, the tennis on the court these couple of weeks don't have to listen, which of course you won't hear since I'm saying this. So I don't know why I'm saying this to those of you who are listening, but let's talk about Roger Federer. That is always safe, right? Nadal fans. Um, <laughs> so Federer won Halle for the eighth time, right? Carl eight times. I think nine, nine times. He was at eight before. Um, so he won Halley, he beat Alexander Zverev, who beat him on grass last year, I believe. And as we briefly mentioned earlier in this episode, he, he got into the top four seeds, thanks to the Wimbledon formula, because of his performance in Stuttgart, which was not so good, losing to Tommy Haas. He didn't take over the number two seed at Wimbledon, but he will get the number three, so he's inside the top four, won't have to play another big four guy until the semifinals, if then, because of course everyone has their question marks they're bringing to Wimbledon big four status or not. But Carl, um, talk about this. You've, you've tweeted a couple things about Federer having relatively weak competition. And so at, at Halley over the years, he's put together a heck of a resume winning nine times, but he hasn't really faced top flight competition to do it, has he? No, I think the stat was that since 2005, he's had to play top 10 guys only twice at Halley. Now he's played some guys just outside the top 10. There are guys as you found, who are better on grass than their rankings. But in general, other top players either haven't entered or haven't reached the match where they'd face him. And, it, you know, the response you, you often get is, well, you can only play the players in front of you. Yes. <laughs> I'm not saying he only has 6.4 Halle titles. He has all nine. But if we want to use Halle as what it should be more useful as, a sort of indicator of his level going into Wimbledon, then this title run is maybe less impressive than it appears, with the exception of the final. I mean, Alex Verev was just outside the top 10 and has, you know, had a really good uh, clay season or at least a really good Rome title with a couple of other good results. Um, And he has said that clay isn't even his favorite surface and he looks very comfortable on grass. He had a good run in the doubles as well with his brother Misha Zverev to the final. So he was he was looking strong coming into the into the final, and Federer blew him off the court. I mean, it was, it was real vintage stuff from Federer on grass. So I wouldn't take a ton from his first four wins, although at least he got through them, unlike his match against Haas and Stuttgart. But at least the final made it look like he he really could be the Wimbledon favorite, as some are saying. And it, it's important to remember with Holly that he. That until last year, I think it was a 250. I mean, there there was not a lot of incentive for top players to play, uh, especially since it's the same week as Queens Club. Uh, I think Queens Club has probably spent a little more money over the years bringing in big names, especially since Halle has probably blown its entire budget on Federer, and also Queens Club is, <laughs> Queens Club is so much more convenient for people who are preparing for Wimbledon. If that's your 
only consideration, and maybe there aren't a lot of other qualitative differences between Holland and Queens Club. If you go play Queens Club, you can rent a place Stay in, in London. London for a week for a month, and yeah, you've got a, a nice place to hang out to train for the tournament. You don't have to to move. It's just generally a, bit, a little bit easier. So I wouldn't be surprised to find that the Queens Club draws have been stronger over the years for that reason, and also just because until until two years ago or last year rather, they they were two fifties. So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't make too much of the two fifty just because everything was two fifty on grass, and it was the the perfect week to play, and that it it still gave you that week off. Um, so if you were going to play any tournaments, it was Holla in London then, and it's still it's probably less so Holla in London now that there's an extra week. So I don't think the five hundred has has changed things that much. And and I think one thing that was probably in Holla's favor before was. It, it was a smaller draw then. I think it was it was 32 as a 250 or maybe even 28, whereas Queens was 56. So if you entered, you maybe there was more money at stake, but you um, you would have to play more matches, uh, whereas it actually dropped to a 32 draw when it went to 500. So I think, if anything, Queens is maybe more attractive now than, than it was relative to Halle. But you're, the convenience factor you cite and probably the appearance money are re- those are really big factors. Uh, could you tell our listeners just how hard it is to get to Halle? <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Normally I'm, I'm really quick with that story. But um, as, as a few of you, especially if we have any German listeners, might know, or anyone who's talked to me in person since I've told this story probably four times to Carl and another couple dozen times to everyone else. But a few years ago I was, I was making a trip to Europe to mostly to see the, the grass tournaments in the UK. I think we talked about my, my first time going to Wimbledon a few episodes ago. And I really like Berlin. It's a great city. I wish I could spend more time there. And I, I managed to plan the trip so I could go to Berlin for a few days before heading to London. And I wanted to go to Halle because I was vaguely aware of, of Halle being in Germany. And I figured I could make a quick trip. I looked at a map. I found Halle. And again, as, as German listeners may be aware, there is more than one of them. There's a Halle that's a nice, easy commute from Berlin, and there's a Halle that is pretty close to Belgium, not that easy of a commute from Berlin. And of course, now I know which one, uh, which one holds the tennis tournament, which I didn't discover until the night before or the morning of, I don't remember. I think I already had my train tickets to the wrong Halle at that point. So I have not been to watch tennis at the Jerry Weber Open, maybe someday, but at least my second try, I will know where I'm going. And I'm pretty sure this happened to one tennis player in the past. I know there are other instances where I think a, a woman was playing an ITF in Charleston in the U.S., and she went to the wrong Charleston between West Virginia and South Carolina, I think are the two Charlestons. Um, a couple other instances where that sort of thing has happened, and I'm a little surprised we don't hear about it more. I mean, obviously, there are only so many cases where the, the names are the same, but when you know, an, an American or a British player is going to play some futures tournaments in China, I mean, that's pretty daunting stuff to figure out for a 22-year-old who spent their life playing tennis to go get themselves around China or Korea or something like that. But yeah, that's that's my Hollis story and, and a, a lesser reason why maybe players would choose to play Queen's Club because you can get to Queen's Club on the tube, lots of stairs, but other than that, not too much of a problem. So speaking of Queen's Club, Carl, we had the final there between Feliciano Lopez and Marin Cilic. Uh, really close match. I actually just watched it yesterday on a replay, and lots of really high-quality tennis, of course, short points, net rushing, all the good stuff we like to see on grass. And 
Chilich had, I think, two match points. Uh, Lopez pulled it out in a third set tiebreak. Really big win for Feliciano Lopez. He's played this tournament many, many times and has, has said he really liked the tournament, was really excited to win it. Not so good for Chilich since that's not his first time to get close to a title like this and, and maybe choke is the wrong word, but to lose after being so close. Um, Carl, do you think that, that that could be a a real thing that happens to players? I mean, it, we all know as recreational players, we can feel it happening when you choke and hit a double fault or do any number of stupid things because we're just not very good at tennis. But I mean, people have speculated in other sports that when you get to the top, that the only way you do get to the top is if you can if you can surpass those effects and and for the most part not be susceptible to choking in pressure situations. You just wouldn't find yourself in the top 10 in the world if you were that sort of player. Uh, do you think that Chilich could have an effect like that where he does tighten up and not play as well in these really tight matches towards the end of, a, of something that he's close to winning? I think it's possible. I think it's probably more possible in tennis uh, where you might be able to get by by winning enough matches that aren't that close to, to keep your ranking high and the effect could be small enough that you still win some of those pressure situations, but not, not as many as you would. I think Stephanie Kowalczyk has done some studies of this. She's a researcher at Tennis Australia, but I think before she got there, she'd done some research on this question and, and found there is some differential between the big four or five on the men's side. Uh, I think we talked about Favrinka, for instance, seeming to have the opposite, where he seems particularly good, maybe not in pressure situations, but in pressure matches. So I, I think there could be something real there, although this is also Queen's Club, one of the fastest courts on tour, and I think some of his match points were were on um, Lopez, Lopez's serve, and in general, it was, it was a very serve-dominated match. So it, I, I would put a really big distinction, especially in the men's game, between losing match points where it's like a 12-10 tiebreaker and both guys have match points, but they're usually on return and, you know, being up 5-2 in a set and and losing despite having a couple of chances to serve for it. Yeah, that is a really important point because I haven't looked at the stats for that Queen's Club final, but I wouldn't be surprised if servers were winning three quarters of points or maybe even more. And a question that I would like to investigate, I might have even speculated about this in a past episode of the podcast, but... Uh, yes, we can look as as I think you're right, Stephanie did, and, and look at performance on big points. And what I'm particularly interested in is whether players change their approaches on big points, whether they take a little bit off the serve, maybe they get a little more aggressive, a little less aggressive, and maybe if we had better data on how they change their tactics, we could have a sense of what effect those tactics have. So for instance, what, what has triggered this speculation for me in the past is the case of John Isner and tiebreaks. And Isner is historically very, very good in tiebreaks. Most people aren't better or worse than you'd expect, uh, other than Isner and a few others. And I wonder if, if everyone, let's say, takes a few miles an hour off their serve in tiebreaks, then some people that's going to hurt more than others. If you're John Isner, you can take five miles an hour off your serve, maybe make more first serves maybe get a little better location than speed. And if you're John Isner, who cares? I mean, you're still serving better than anybody else in the game. But if you're someone a little further down the ranks in the serve tables, then maybe that's going to affect you more. So if that is a tactic in tie breaks, then that's going to look like performance in the clutch. 
And yes, that is something that's happening in clutch situations since tie breaks almost always are high leverage situations, but maybe it isn't about choking. Maybe it's about bad tactics or bad applications of tactics. So that's something that we might have enough data now to dig into with match charting projects data since we would have shot by shot information on a lot of tie breaks, a lot of high pressure points from a range of players. And I don't think that was what was happening in the Queen's Club final, because as you point out, those were, I believe, return point match points, and nobody was winning high-pressure return points in that match. So maybe not relevant. Or many low-pressure ones. Yeah, not very many low-pressure return points either. Uh, Chilich did hit more nice passing shot than I expected. Like I, I always think of him as such a, a, a low-key, one-dimensional player that I'm surprised when he does anything else. And Lopez was net rushing quite a bit, as you'd expect from him on grass. And I mean, most of the time it was successful. Of course, the, the, the serve stats are going to bear that out. But Chilich does come up with some nice backhand winners from time to time. And Lopez was testing him quite a bit. So it was interesting to see him come through with that because that's the sort of thing you need to do to, to beat a big server, even if it wasn't quite enough for Chilich in that match on Sunday. I'm surprised you could. What, what is the one dimension you think of Chilich on? Oh, just the the big serve. I mean, it, obviously, it's more than just the serve. Like like it is for any big server. He's not quite as as one dimensional as Isner or Karlovich. But when I think of Chilich, I just imagine him hitting a big serve down the tee, getting a weak reply, and swatting away a forehand or the backhand solid too. But I don't think of him as someone in rallies. And maybe I'm I'm oversimplifying the men's game to say that's one dimensional, since that does leave a lot of players as one dimensional. But that is how I think of him. Okay. I guess um, because I think of him as having maybe even a better backhand than forehand, I, I was surprised to hear it. But I agree that, you know, especially on his service games, it is it is usually a pretty quick strike tennis. Yeah. Um, let's see. We don't have a lot of time left. We definitely spoke more about McEnroe and Serena than I had intended. Carl, of the other things that we wanted to talk about this week, is there anything that you're particularly jazzed about covering in the episode? Uh, w- one quick thing. Did, did we yet say exactly the order of magnitude of the effect of, of the seeding change in terms of probability of winning? We should probably follow up on that since we were speculating. We should, yes. We talked about that last week or maybe the week before when we were talking about the importance of Federer's performance on grass courts. And I wrote a post about it just today, actually, uh, on the Tennis Abstract blog. And what I did was I took current current weighted grass ELO ratings for every player in the Wimbledon draw, or the my approximated Wimbledon draw, I guess. It doesn't really matter who's at the in the, the last 64 players. It matters just about the top players and their ratings. So I, comp- I compared what their title chances would look like just if we just used, used seedings from the ATP rankings, like most tournaments do, versus using seedings from Wimbledon's formula, which of course is more grass result-focused. And as we mentioned earlier, Federer is outside the top four in the ATP rankings, but in the Wimbledon seedings, he worked his way up to third. He had an outside chance of getting to second, but he didn't. But in, in any event, he and the rest of the big four are the top four seeds at Wimbledon. And when I ran the numbers on the, the doing a hundred thousand simulations of the draw in both of those cases, ATP rankings as seedings or Wimbledon algorithms as seedings, I found that in terms of title chances, actually winning the trophy, it didn't matter that much. And I think a big part of that is because if you're going to win the title, you're going to have to play two or three really good players. And 
it doesn't matter how the draw is structured, you can't get around that. So for Federer, my simulation said with the ATP seedings coming in as number five, he would have a 21% chance of winning the title. Coming in as number three, it's a 22.4% chance of winning the title. So it's not a big difference at all. But if we look at the chances of getting to the semifinal, which is more affected by being inside or outside of the top four, that's a pretty big difference. And in those simulations, as the number five seed, he would have a 49.6% chance of reaching the semis. As the number three seed, you have a 64% chance of reaching the semis, which is pretty big difference. And that's entirely based on the fact that as the number three seed, he won't have to play Murray, Nadal, or Djokovic until the semis, guaranteed. He might get Vavrinka in the quarterfinals. There's a one in four chance of that. I mean, based on the draw, there's less of a chance of that because Vavrinka could lose earlier. But that's, in terms of the, the rankings right now, that's the worst case scenario. It's just that 25% chance that he ends up in Vavrinka's quarter. Vavrinka doesn't rate very high on grass, so there's, there might be worse opponents he could face in the quarters. But in the ATP version, he would have a 75% chance of having to face Djokovic and Dollar Murray in the quarters, which of course makes it a lot less likely he would land in the semis at all. So with the Wimbledon seedings being more based on, on grass court results and Federer climbing up the ranks, it makes it a lot more likely we'll see him in the final four. And what I found interesting in those results, I'll pass it back to you in, in, in a second, Carl, but because it makes it more likely that Federer won't lose to or knock out one of the other top players in the quarters, that makes it more likely we have a big four semifinal. I mean, no surprises in the semifinals. And it, that advantage to Federer of 14, 15 percentage points translates into a disadvantage to almost every single other seed. So of the 32 seeds, having Wimbledon seedings instead of ATP seedings increases the semifinal chances of the big four and Tomas Burdich. And it decreases the semifinal chances of everyone else basically because it eliminates the chance of a surprise quarter, basically someone just taking advantage of a weak quarter, probably Bobrinka's quarter. Um, with the Wimbledon seedings, that's not going to happen. So, Carl, your thoughts? One of my big thoughts going in is what do we make of what the algorithms say about Murray, Djokovic, and Nadal? So Nadal won't have had any grass matches coming in and I, I guess it's still possible he could withdraw. Uh, so it's hard to know what to make of him. Um, and he, ha he hasn't made much of Wimbledon or grass in about five years. And then Djokovic just slumping and uh, he's, he's in Eastbourne, which I guess is a good sign that he wants to get more matches in, but it's also somewhat a sign of desperation. It's not something he would, he would normally do the week before a major and then Murray crashing out badly in the first round at Queens after having his first maybe really encouraging tournament in a while at the French Open where he got to a fifth set in the semis. So I, I, I wonder if the algorithm is overly confident about those guys, although I always come back to at a major, it's best of five, and you get easy, relatively easy opponents usually in the first couple of rounds, especially on the men's side where there are fewer of these dangerous unseated floaters. Uh, so there's a chance to play your way back into form and, and get used to the surface. So it, it seems on paper like not a, a huge impact because either way you have, to, you have to play some top players in the end, but I wouldn't be surprised if the draw opens up more than the algorithm seems to expect. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And it is kind of funny how this has developed over the last year or so, because for almost the whole time I've been running tournament simulations like this, which is now going back, I don't know, six or seven years, the main comment I've gotten from people is sort of disbelief that I'm not, my system, my algorithms aren't more optimistic about the top players. Because, you know, you go into the French Open and you're sure Rafael Nadal is going to win. So if you see a, I think we talked about this at length a couple episodes ago, if you see Rafael Nadal as the 40% favorite at the French Open, you think the algorithm is way too conservative. Or Djokovic at the Australian Open a few years ago, something like that. It, it seems like those guys should be way higher. And that's been the most common response I've gotten to these tournament forecasts for for years until of course really just this year or so when all of a sudden you see Murray at the top of the of the rankings talking about him with a I don't know what what is he at 30 uh, Djokovic is a 35% chance of winning the tournament according to my algorithm Murray's at 24% and those somehow seem too high now for the the reasons you talk about they're all they're all valid reasons I I I feel those instincts myself and I always had to tell people to, to trust the algorithm in weighting all the different possible scenarios that a player could you know show up kind of hurt and lose because of that, or just it could be the beginning of a, of a career-long decline or something like that. There's all these reasons why a, a conservative forecast really isn't conservative, but we are, we're at a point where the opposite is, is, is showing up in that ELO isn't that good at recognizing quick, changes in a player's ability level or in Djokovic's case maybe motivation levels or whatever is going on with these guys so it might be that the ratings are uh, are falling behind what's really happening on the other hand we could we could find out in a couple weeks that Marie did have another Wimbledon title in him or Djokovic had another slam title in him and we would look silly for doubting them two weeks ahead of time so the the numbers are telling us something but yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. All the instincts say that it's going to be more wide open than this. When I talk about a likely big four semifinals, like, I know that's not really what's going to happen. Even even the, the algorithm doesn't think that's definitely going to happen. I, I don't know what exactly the, the odds would be of seeing all four of them in the semis, but not that high. Like, it would be maybe... I don't know, maybe one third or something like that, just eyeballing the number, maybe even a little less. So we'll we'll probably see a surprise semifinalist. We could see more than one. Uh, but because Djokovic and Murray have been so good over the years at Wimbledon, and obviously they they could come back and play their way into a tournament like Murray did at Roland Garros. I mean, there's there's definitely some advantage to Federer not having to face them until the semifinals and. Having maybe having to face a dangerous player like Milos Ronic in the quarters instead, but I mean, if I were Federer and I had to pick right now of a quarterfinal against Ronic or a quarterfinal versus Murray, I would definitely take the one versus Ronic. I mean, these other guys are are no more of sure things than Murray and Djokovic are. Agreed. Uh, you, you said there, if there's anything else, and we're way past time, but very quickly, just for loyal fans, uh, we. We got to note that Diego Schwartzman came really close to getting his first tour-level grass win. Diego's one of our favorites. Grass is not his favorite surface, so that that was exciting. Maybe he'll get an easy draw at Wimbledon. And uh, Albert Ramos made a run to the semis in doubles, and now Lucas Puy is the is the new Albert Ramos, has the new really long losing streak in doubles, as you pointed out. Yeah, I think he's, he's up to 10 losses in a row, if I remember that right, and it is a bit surprising since he's played with some pretty good partners, including Julian Beneteau. Uh, he 
he's playing doubles pretty regularly, although not at slams, which is a bit strange. So don't really know where his motivations lay with doubles, but apparently he's not all that interested in winning since he's down to, to 0 and 10. So I think we should probably wrap it up for this week. Uh, thank you, everything, everyone, for, for joining us. We'll, we'll try to do an episode ahead of Wimbledon, uh, maybe once the draw is out, but before play starts on Monday. So, Carl, thank you, as always, for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. And we will see you next time.